The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. This Dharma, incomparable, profound, minutely subtle, pervading the entire universe, revealing right here, right now, is rarely experienced, even in hundreds, thousands, millions of eons. We can see it, we can listen to it, we can embrace and know it. May we completely understand and actualize this Tathagata's true meaning. A human being is part of a whole called by us universe a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for each of us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. When we realize the extent of the myriad interconnections which link us to all other life forms, we realize that our existence only becomes meaningful through interaction with and in relation to others. Buddhism teaches that all life is interrelated, interconnected, interdependent. Through the concept of dependent origination, it holds that nothing truly exists in isolation or independent of other life. The Japanese term for dependent origination is enji, literally arising in relation. In other words, all beings and phenomena exist or occur only because of their relation with other beings or phenomena. Everything in the world <coughs> comes into existence in response to causes and conditions. Nothing can exist in absolute independence of other things or arise of its own accord. Shakyamuni used, used the image of two bundles of reeds leaning against each other to explain this deep interconnectedness. He described how the two bundles of reeds 
can remain standing as long as they lean against each other. In the same way, because this exists, that exists. And because that exists, this exists. If one of the two bundles is removed, then the other will fall. Similarly, without this existence, that cannot exist. And without that existence, this cannot exist. More specifically, Buddhism teaches that our lives are constantly developing in a dynamic way, in a, syn in a synergy of the internal causes within our own life, our personality, our experiences, our conditioning, outlook, attitude, beliefs, opinions about life, and so on, and the external conditions and relations around us. Each individual exists, existence contributes to creating the environment which sustains all other existence. All things mutually supportive and related from a, form a living cosmos a single living whole, as Einstein said, called by us, universe. When we realize the extent of the myriad interconnections which link us to all other life forms, we realize that our existence only becomes meaningful through interaction with and in relation to others. By engaging ourselves with others, our identity, our identity is developed, established, and enhanced. We then understand that it is possible to build our own, it is impossible to build our own happiness on the unhappiness of others. We also see that our constructive actions affect the world around us. And as Nietzschean wrote, if you light a lamp for another, your own way, will be lit. There is an intimate mutual interconnection in the web of nature, in the relationship between humankind and its environment, and also between the individual and society, parents and children, husband and wife. Buddhism also likens wisdom to a clear mirror that perfectly reflects reality as it is. What is reflected in this mirror of wisdom is the interrelatedness and interdependence of our life with all other life forms. If as individuals we can embrace the view that because of that this exists, or in other words because of that person I can develop, then we need never experience pointless conflicts in human relations. In the case of a young married woman, for instance, her present existence is in relation to her husband and mother-in-law, regardless of what sort of people they may be. Someone who realizes this can turn everything, both good and bad, into an impetus for personal growth. Buddhism teaches that we choose the family and circumstances into which we are born in order to learn and grow to be able to fulfill our unique role and receptive mission in life. On a deeper level, we are connected and related 
not just to those physically close to us, but to every living being, past, present, and future. If we can realize this, feelings of loneliness and isolation, which cause so much suffering and stress and anxiety, begin to vanish as we realize that we are part of a dynamic, mutually interconnected whole. As Daisaku Aikeda once, written, once wrote, we're all human beings who, through some mystic bond, were born to share the same limited lifespan on this planet, a small green oasis in the vast universe. Why do we quarrel and victimize one another? If we could all keep the image of the vast heavens in mind, I believe that it would go a long way toward resolving conflicts and disputes. If our eyes are fixed on eternity, we can come to realize that the conflicts of our little egos are really sad and unimportant, as well as our worries and our concerns. Good evening. In the Buddhist prescription toward liberating ourselves from suffering and its causes, he begins in what has come to be known historically as the Eightfold Noble Path with what he called right view or right understanding. And we understand that this Eightfold Path exists again in an interconnected web. And so he went on to say, resolve the first, right view and right understanding, and the remaining sevenfolds fall into place. In fact, Buddhism teaches us that all of our stress and anxiety, our worryment and fear, which informs so often our actions, our words, our choices, our decisions, and our commitments, do not exist independent, but have a cause, and it is in the realization of that cause and understanding of that cause that we are able to find solutions for its effect. As Albert Einstein's word reminds us, our reality, and this is what he was referring to, just as the words of Shakyamuni are not to be understood as some kind of Buddhist philosophy, but as the opening of the Dharma says, we can see this for ourselves if we look and we have the eyes to see it. We can hear it, we can touch it, we can know it and embrace it. That the reality of all life forms in the universe, that the reality of the universe itself and everything that exists in the universe is interconnected, interdependent, rather than as we experience it, as Einstein, Einstein says, as a kind of optical delusion, we experience it differently. We experience it as if you and I exist separate and apart from everything else. And that separate and apartness experience is what we refer to as ego, or our egocentric experience. All aim and purpose and objective of any authentic spiritual practice, of any effort 
whether it be Zen Buddhism or any other spiritual practice, is the dismantling of what Trungpa Rinpoche called the bureaucracy of ego, or what Einstein might call, again, that optical delusion that continually misinforms us about our reality. That misinformation, that egocentric point of view, when we look at the Eightfold Noble Path, must be corrected. So the Buddha said that if we are ever going to set out on the path of liberating ourselves, bringing about cessation from our own suffering, our own stress and anxiety, and global suffering, and the stress and anxiety of daily living for so many millions of people, we need to realize reality. We need to get real. We need to get with the real program. And one of the methods, particularly in Zen Buddhism, used is a reference to what we call big mind, or what I prefer to call the bigger picture. So you and I always exist in two domains, one time or another, in our daily living. We exist in what Zen calls little mind, and that little mind existence is a, again, self-perceived reality of this separateness that Einstein refers to and that all of Buddhism says needs to be resolved. We experience ourselves, as Einstein said, as limited and restricted and separate from all the rest. And so the way we manifest that experience in our life is we live our life. We live what we call my life. And when you talk to people about their life, it is indeed a very limited context. It includes a specific number of people, or again, as Einstein says to us, he experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings, as something separated from the rest, a kind of prison restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. And that pretty accurately describes the way we normally live our lives. We tend to go through the day focused on our own personal interests, kind of bouncing off of each other throughout the course of the day. And not because we are necessarily selfish or self-centered, but because everything having a cause, the cause for that way of living is a function of this, again, optical delusion, or what the Buddha called wrong view or ignorance. This egocentric experience of this kind of separateness, non-connected, independent self is not the reality that not only Buddhism suggests not to be, but physics and all of science points to as well. Albert Einstein having lived nearly you know, 2,000 years after you know, the Buddha speaks about it in his own words. When we realize the extent of the myriad interconnections which link each of us to other life forms, we realize that our existence only becomes meaningful through interaction with and in relation to others. So this optical delusion, 
this wrong view, which regularly and almost dominates our view of ourself and our view of ourself in relationship to the rest of the world, again, informs. And so when you do the real work of spirituality, much of it has to do with realizing how my point of view informs my experience. It literally shapes and forms my experience. Another way I often talk about this is that the mind sees what the heart desires. The mind sees only what the heart desires. So again, when we talk about what the heart desires in this context, we are talking about our cravings, our wants, our expectations, uh, our disappointments and dissatisfaction that is born of not having those cravings and expectations fulfilled. And when we are craving for something, you and I both know, uh, you know, when we are craving for something, even if that something we are craving for is harmful to ourselves or the purchase of a product, you know, may be harmful to others, maybe it's made in a country that enslaves children, you know, and, um, you know, at slave wages, we still go for it. And we go for it, again, not because we're selfish or, or, or you know, in that way, you know, don't care. We go for it, again, because this view of ours is always informing that choice. So that is why the Buddha emphasized, with great emphasis, that nothing changes until our view changes. And in fact, this is what happened to him, and this is what happens to everyone. At that moment, we often refer to as enlightenment. When you read the story surrounding the Buddha's own personal enlightened moment, that moment in which he became the Buddha, it reads that he saw the morning star and was enlightened. He became the Buddha. And the morning star was a term used in those days for the sun. So I've often talked about this and wrote about how when I first read that for myself personally, I wanted to know what was up with the sun. What was it doing? And the fact of the matter is it wasn't doing anything different than it has done for millions of years. It was the same sun he had seen for the first 20 some, 30 some years of his life and it was just hanging in the sky. What was different was how he looked at it, was how he saw it in that moment. His view of the universe, of the world around him, of his relationship and interconnectedness, which was at one time the opposite, his view had changed. He had seen things from a completely different place. And so when he laid out the prescription for the rest of us to resolve our own sense of separateness and loneliness and despair, he begins with just that. Our view needs to be correct. We need to be with the program. And all of physics, as well as Buddhism, teaches, again, as tonight's introductory suggests, that the program is we are interconnected and interdependent. We are related. It's kind of like the way I talk about it in relationship seminars. I often say to people, this is not about becoming related. This is about realizing we are related. 
you and I are interconnected in a mysterious web and interdependent as well. And we can go on and on and on, and in fact I've been doing that for 40 years, trying to get the message of interconnectedness in relationships across the people. And after doing that for 40 years, I kind of like given up almost. Uh, because you, know, you either get it or you don't get it. So what I have learned to do that is more skillful and effective is to bring it down to a much more uh, specific place. And that is, we can begin to possibly experience this interconnectedness when we talk about the fundamental teaching of karma in Buddhism. And that is, everything has a cause, and every cause has an effect. Nothing just happens. Everything that exists has a cause, and every cause has an effect. And once that effect is manifested, it becomes a cause. So that cause and effect and cause and effect and cause and effect from the beginningless past is another example of this interconnected, interdependent web which we all exist. So the first thing people want to say when they have met me for the first time over the past 40 years is they want to be happy. We all want to be happy. I want to be happy. You want to be happy. And happiness, if again we read the teachings in Buddhism, is abundant in the universe. It is abundant. There is no lack of happiness, just as there is no lack of love, there is no lack of joy, no lack of peace. Happiness exists in the same energy of infinite potential. Again, if you were listening to the opening of the Dharma, pervading the entire universe. Happiness pervades the entire universe. Abundance pervades the entire universe. When we talk about abundance pervading the entire universe, the most obvious question shows up for all of us. Well, if that's true, why is my bank account so low? And again, that has to do with understanding the true cause of lack we have in the world. So over the years, when I have regularly spoken before academic bodies, high school students graduating, college students graduating, I often reference to the fact that I say to them in my talks, you have been told during this period of time that the aim and purpose of this academic path has been to prepare you to live in the real world. That is a lie. What you have been prepared to do is to live in the world humans have created. And you need to know the difference. The world of lack and desperation is the world we have created, again, out of our own ignorance about the real structure of the universe. So when I, a student of Dharma, when the Buddha saw into the real structure of the universe, he said it was wondrous and miraculous, nothing lacking, nothing we need to go try to get more of. It is of the nature of abundance. And we need to just see that for ourselves. One of the other problems in this whole issue of happiness 
has to do with, again, my definition of happiness. And that definition and how it informs where I expect to find happiness. So that very statement about finding happiness or getting happy is part of the delusion, part of the lie about happiness. So we often think of it as something that happens to us when certain conditions and certain dates and times show up. We often think of it, don't we, as something in the future. Sometime tomorrow, one of those tomorrows, I will be happy when this or that happens. But the reality is, when we take a look at happiness, when we take a look at peace of mind, when we take a look at joy and love and all the other things we all seek to experience for ourselves more regularly than we do, they exist in a domain of, again, a paradigm or way of life. Happiness has a cause. So one of the problems with happiness in relationships is we expect to be happy when our relationships lack the causes for happiness. Or we expect to prosper when our way of life lacks the causes for prosperity. And we find ourselves stuck in this kind of prison, as Einstein called it, wanting to get out. But we don't have a way out because the way out has a cause. Discover the cause, practice or live the cause, and the effect will follow. Because everything in the universe is an interconnected web of causes and effects. Causes and effects. The reality is, when we take a walk in the pine lands and really take time to observe it from a very objective place, we see abundant prosperity everywhere. I've never seen a hungry bird, even in the Acme parking lot, you see? And I've talked about this. I remember one day sitting in my car waiting for someone to come out of the Acme, and I noticed these very chubby-looking little birds. You've all seen them. And they're just like finding food in among the stones of the parking lot all the time. And I've never seen one that was kind of like emaciated and thin and barely walking. They seem to find it where they look, they're saying. And that is because they don't have the view of lack. And they don't have the view of profit and loss. They see the abundance everywhere. Remember, the mind sees what the heart desires. So again, when we take a look at nature, until man comes along and does something in that part of the forest all the time, there is abundance everywhere. There's enough water for everyone. There's enough food for everyone, and so forth. And you know, when that changes, perhaps by some kind of natural disaster, we don't see the animals panicking. They may be running from the fire, but when the fire is over and their life is no longer in danger, they know what to do. And they find what they need to continue, and so forth. We human beings that are always panicking when tragedy or challenges strike need to wake up that that experience of panic, that moment that somehow convinces us our life is over, we're not going to get through this. And so I ask you, for example, how many times in your life have you had that experience? 
where some challenge or tragedy has struck your life and you felt like this was it and you weren't going to make it and here you are tonight. Because we do make it and we can, but we are not designed to just make it. We, like everything else in the universe, is designed to thrive because we, like everything else in the universe, are part of that interconnected web of abundance and love and joy and happiness. Or as you have heard me talk about it in the past, we are hardwired for this stuff. We are biologically, chemically, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically hardwired for love and abundance and joy and happiness. And we witness this in the life of little children which we were at one time, no matter how old we are, don't remember it, we were. So when we realize the extent of the myriad of interconnections which link us to each other and all other life forms, we realize that our existence only becomes meaningful through interaction with and in relation to others. And this interaction with and in relation to others is part of what Buddhism calls the third jewel or third refuge that the Buddha Shakyamuni prescribed in the three refuges. As Buddhists we say, I take refuge in Buddha nature. And when we say I take refuge in Buddha nature, we are confirming that I and everyone else, just as the Buddha declared on that day of his own enlightenment, possess all the wisdom, all the knowledge, and all the understanding that the universe has to offer, and that is everywhere else in the universe. We say, I take refuge in the Dharma. And the use of the term Dharma here means the universe. I take refuge in the design, purpose, fact of interconnectedness and interdependence that characterizes this reality called by us universe. And last but not least, in his wisdom, the Buddha prescribed, I take refuge in the Sangha, or the community, which is relationship. Relationship is the battleground for enlightenment. In Zen Buddhism, no community, no interrelating, no interconnected with others working toward the same goal, no enlightenment. Just like I say to you, happiness is a way of life. That way of life is another term for a cause. The cause for happiness is a function of how I live my life. The cause for unhappiness is a function of how I live my life. Two people in an intimate and personal relationship with each other who find themselves in a moment of pain and suffering and arguing and discontentment in the relationship, if they can learn to stop and take a deep breath and examine what is really going on in that moment and what is really causing that pain and suffering is not the other party or the other party, but both parties living in that moment in a way that causes suffering. So, you know, one of the things that you get to do in the relationship seminar is to learn how to fight. There's no problem with fighting, 
if you know how to fight effectively and skillfully. And one of the reasons why that is central as part of the training in the relationship seminar that I've done over the past 30 years is that when we examine those moments of pain and suffering in relationships, the parties are speaking to each other in a way that, what do you think is going to happen? The parties are handling the dissatisfaction in a way that, what do you think is going to happen? You know, if you, if you talk to a stranger that way, that stranger is going to react the same way. So we tend to think the other person is causing the suffering. No, I'm not. You're causing the suffering. And in that moment, we see that optical delusion at work here. I'm talking about it, experiencing it, and trying to resolve it from a very separate position, apart from you. So one of the things I talk about when I talk about relationships is that in every relationship there are three people. We tend to think of only two people. But the truth of the matter is there are three people in every relationship. There is you, there is me, and then there is the relationship. And when we find ourselves in those moments feeling alienated and disappointed and hurt and so forth, usually one of those three parties has been left out. And usually it's the relationship. And by relationship I mean it is why we got together to start with. So I often tell the story about my two dear friends that are the only friends from my childhood I've kept in touch with all these years. And you've heard me refer to him as bro, and he refers to me as bro. And I've known him and his wife forever. And I've been godfather to one of their sons. And we still have this wonderful uh, relationship that's gone on after all these years. And back when they were first dating and getting ready to get married, they live in a small apartment in Blackwood. And I remember going there one day, expecting that we were going to watch the game eat some uh, you know, food and, and have a good time together. And I walk in on this fight going on between the two of them. And he's in the kitchen and she's in the bedroom. And he's yelling at her from the kitchen and she's yelling at him from the bedroom. Sound familiar, anybody? <laughs> okay. So he says, bro, come in here. So I go into the kitchen and he's telling me how terrible she is and how stupid she is and how he can't take it anymore and he's not going to marry her and blah, 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 blah. And I asked him a question. Who do you love? And he's screaming and yelling about her faults and all. And I asked him the question, who do you love? And he's screaming and yelling about. It took about a dozen times to where he said, all right, all right, I, I know what you mean. Of course I love her, okay? So who do you really love? And he said, I love Chrissy. I just wish she would listen to me. I said, all right, I'll be right back. So I go into the bedroom, and she's telling me all about how stupid he is, and how could I even think of marrying him, and blah, blah, blah. And I asked her, who do you love? Took her a little less. It was about seven or eight times. And she said, well, you know I love Warren. I'm crazy about him. But he's so damn stupid and pigheaded. I said, but who do you love? And that process eventually led to her coming out of the bedroom, him coming out of the kitchen, and I was asked to leave because they needed some time alone. And I was fine by that point because I wasn't about to watch a game with them. What had happened in that moment was that the relationship, again, was permitted back into the room. 
and by again the relationship, the intention from the start, or what we talk about when we talk about creating viable communities, shared vision. Their shared vision, like any sustainable and fulfilling relationship, was two people that loved each other and cared about each other, not two people who suddenly in a moment of ignorance, suddenly in a moment of optical delusion could not even see each other. And you know what happens when that happens. You say things you don't mean, you do things you don't mean. But if you don't know how to reconcile that, if you don't know the cause for reconciliation and apply the cause for reconciliation, then the fight continues and things get out of hand and, you know, like myself personally, we all know where that can lead to. Everything that exists in the universe from the beginningless past has a cause for its existence. Apart from its cause, it cannot exist. Discover the cause for happiness, the cause for peace of mind, the cause for love, apply the cause, and the effect follows. That is how the entire universe is interconnected. When we want to work on finding our own inner peace, our own inner joy, the way, again, we often do that is that we tend to think of it as something separate from ourselves. The solution for my happiness I go looking for. Uh, I have esteemed respect for those men and women who were part of putting that Bill of Rights and direct Declaration of Independence and Constitution together. But if I ever have an opportunity to sit down and discuss things with them, I want to ask them why the hell they put in the pursuit of happiness. You're saying. Because it has caused more problems for people than anything. Because, as I often say, as Americans, we have mastered the pursuit of happiness, but know very little about living life and true freedom. You're saying. So we're very good at pursuing happiness. And that is, again, part of that optical delusion, that my happiness exists as something apart. But when we take the time, again, to look at those times when we are truly happy, we are behaving or living in a way that causes that happiness. When we take a look at those times that we feel loved, truly loved, and one of the ways I often say this is that in my life's experience, the only time I have ever known I was loved was when I was loving someone. And the way most of us do it again is that we wait for that to show up for us. If you want to know you are loved, you need to be about loving the people you love and the things you love and the things you love doing. You need to be about doing that. Everything is a function of our way of living. How we are thinking in the moment, and again, when you take a look at the Eightfold Noble Path that begins with right view, he goes on with right intention or right thought, right speech, right action. Again, this prescription for cessation from suffering is an, is an anatomy of a way of living our life that if we commit to living our life that way, and we commit to the business of looking into the reality of the universe, 
we can see how it all comes together in a wise or wisdom-based awareness that you and I are interconnected. You and I are interconnected with each other and with everything else in the universe. And our thoughts inform our experience. Our experience informs our speech. Our speech informs our actions and so forth and so forth until finally we get to the way I am living my life in this moment is informing the effect of what I am either satisfied with or dissatisfied with. Everything has a cause that creates an effect and once the effect is created, it becomes a cause and that cause continues outward into the world as cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect. And that is what we Buddhists mean by karma. Karma is your actions, whether through thought, speech, or deed, causing certain effects that ripple out and leave additional effects throughout the universe. Any questions? Thoughts. understanding it is, it is not necessarily the thought present in our consciousness in the moment. It's our attachment with that thought. Okay? okay? Mm -hmm. Because again, as you've heard me talk about it, when you meditate, you, come, you become familiar with the nature of thoughts. Mm -hmm. And so we tend to think, until we do the work of examining or inquiring, that we're doing the thinking and you find out that we're not doing the thinking. If you're doing the thinking, then stop thinking, okay? So thoughts have a life of their own because what they are are fields of energy, okay? A thought is a field of energy made up of the thought and the experience or emotion or feeling that it generates. And they tend to have a life of their own. What the Buddha was talking about is best uh, understood with uh, what I feel we should call right intention. So what is our intention about our thoughts? You know, in the course of the day, can I say that I am always thinking pure thoughts? Sister Maria Conchetta will tell you no. All right? So, uh, but it's my awareness that in this moment, if I'm if I'm feeling stressful or anxious or angry, uh, again, the work is to be aware of that experience and from the wisdom of cause, aware of the thoughts running through my head at this moment. And then I choose before I speak, I choose before I act, to either attach to that or detach. In that process I described with my friends, what it did was help them detach from their thinking about each other in the manner they were in that moment. So that's why therapists will remove one of the parties from the room for a while, where all of the great wisdoms of our 
you know, grandparents and all is, you know, don't let the sun go down on your argument, you know, or don't make decisions when you're really mad, okay? And what they're saying is that wait until you've detached from that emotion. So that's what we're talking about when we say right thought. Right thought is really more about awareness of whatever it is I'm thinking at the moment. And again, what happens from that is dependent upon my attachment to that thought. Okay, so I might have a, a very belligerent thought about somebody in the moment and act still with loving kindness and compassion. And that's what the training is about. It's about training myself. We train in the monastery to become more precisely and efficiently aware of our thoughts and emotions so that we know what to do in that moment to bring about the specific result we want. Okay? Thank you. No thought, and this is another thing when we talk about thoughts, you need to understand. We tend to think of our thoughts as real, as solid, as form. No thought we think becomes real until we manifest it through action. So I might think, I hate you, but that hatred does not become real unless I act on that thought. So how many times have we thought that about someone we love? I hate him. I hate her. And we know the opposite is true. Okay? We know that we love them, but in that moment that thought is present. That thought should not be held as something to be afraid of. So it's not about being afraid of what I'm thinking of. It's about recognizing that, okay, in this moment, that's what you're thinking. But it doesn't become real until you act on it. God knows how many Republicans I have welcomed here, <laughs> despite my thoughts. <laughs> Someone actually asked me that. Can I come? I'm a Republican. <laughs> so, uh, of course you can. We forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> hi. 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 Hey, breathing in, breathing out. <laughs> How about Donald? Can I'm sorry? How about Donald? Can Donald come? Sure. <laughs> sure, Donald can come. As long as he leaves a big donation. <laughs> he wants me to believe he's that rich, he's got to prove it. <laughs> so, our optical delusion, as Einstein called it, is the delusion that happiness, love, joy, fulfillment can be found in a separate reality, an independent reality. And again, as the writers of the, the words I shared with you tonight focus on, our happiness is interdependent upon our interrelationship with each other our thinking about others. Uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama teaches it in this way. He says, wherever I go in the course of my day, whatever room I may enter, whoever else may be occupying that room, my first thought when I come into that room is that how can I benefit them? Not what can I get from them? And that's one of the problems about community here. Again, uh, 
you know, people are always telling me, and by always I mean over the past 30, 35 years, people are saying to me, and it's something I've always rejected, Bruce, you have to convince people how this will benefit them. And that's a complete contradiction of the teachings of Dana Paramita. The teaching is we interrelate with others with loving kindness and compassion because that is the reality of the universe. The rain falls on the good and the bad. The sun shines on the Republicans and the Democrats. I say, uh, you know, God's grace does not discriminate and neither should we discriminate. So as His Holiness said, whoever is in that room, my first thought is, how may I benefit them? And that is the thought I hold throughout the course of, of my day. And if you take a look at such men as His Holiness throughout history, you take a look at President Carter, you take a look at Mother Teresa, you take a look at these figures that have literally changed human consciousness in the course of history. They all live their lives from that place. My life, and I talk about it in this way, when we ask the question, what is the meaning and purpose of my life? The meaning of your life is to live your life as who you truly are, authentically, and to live authentically as a benefit for others. So again, as the Master writes, when we realize the extent of the myriad of interconnections which link us to all other life forms, we realize that our existence only becomes meaningful through interaction with and in relation to others. Our life becomes meaningful. And this is, you know, this, is, this should not be, you know, uh, uh, you know, new to anyone in this room. Again, we often, and, but what we, we make the mistake that Einstein says, restricting that experience to just a few, we, we all want to be loved and to love someone. We all desire to have a relationship like that. And when we find that relationship, we talk about it as if it fulfills us and completes us and so forth. So relationship is the cause for so much in our life that we continue to look for in all the wrong places. But again, back to how to live skillfully. And that is where I brought the conversation because again, we often talk about it from a very broad and abstract place. Everything in the universe is interdependent, interconnected, and interrelated. Okay, what does that have to do with when I wake up tomorrow morning and this and that and this and that and this and that has to be met? And again, what that has to do with is that skillfulness. And that was the singular aim and objective of the Buddha. The Buddha was not seeking mystical or uh, supernatural or anything of that sort understanding. He was not in search of God. He was not in search of any of those things. And that is why he never talked about any of those things. When people tried to engage him in such questions, he would say, you need to figure that out for yourself. This is what I teach, he said. When I, a student of Dharma, look at the, at, at the human existence on earth, I see that it is marked by suffering. I want to understand that suffering. 
why do so many people have so much mental anguish and stress and anxiety and worryment about their life in the world? That's all I am interested in. And so he went on to explain that I want to learn how to live skillfully in a world that I have come to recognize that is not only interconnected and interdependent, but impermanent in nature. And he identified how we hold that impermanency in life, how we hold change as a big cause for suffering. You know? And one of the ways I talk about it in, again, the relationship seminars and, and in other forms is you know, when we think of change, most of us, we resist it or we fear it because we see change as a problem, you see. So our fear really is about problems. So the Buddha could have said, life is problematic. He could have said, life is just one big problem you're going to get to solve for the rest of your life. And so I say to people, the problem is not that life is a problem. The problem you have with problems is that you have a problem with problems, you saying, and so forth. So the Buddha said, instead of having a problem with problems, I want to know how to skillfully handle problems. And that is what all of the Buddha Dharma is really about. It's a system of skillfulness about how to navigate through a reality of impermanence where change is constant, how to navigate through a reality that is marked by ignorance, and that means that most people go through their lifetime. I mean, look at the number of people in this room tonight. Most people go through their lifetime completely oblivious to the reality of their life and are convinced by the time they get to the end of their lifetime that the entire meaning of their life was to get up on Monday morning and go to work and work for that paycheck and go out Friday night and Saturday night and Sunday and, and all the rest that we consider to be our normal society. The very notion of connectedness to something larger than that doesn't exist for most people and so forth. So the Buddha said, how do I get to navigate through that fact that most people not only live in the ignorance of this reality, but choose it, but choose it. Because you know, if they weren't choosing it, they would be doing something about it. So the Buddha Dharma is a system of skillfulness. And when we approach it that way, then we ask the question, all right, so how do I deal with this stress and anxiety in my body when it shows up? How do I deal with the stress that comes out of working at the job I have? How do I deal with living in that mundane part of reality that is, you know, most people's lives? He wanted to understand that. And so the understanding that he gained in his effort to understand it and has taught has been a system of skillfulness. And the skillfulness begins with an awareness of this cause and effect paradigm that governs everything in the universe. So instead of thinking thoughts as if every thought I think is real and true, we deal with our thoughts in a different way. If at the moment I am experiencing sadness or disappointment or worryment or fear, rather than 
acting on that from a primordial place, which is always fight or flight, I take the time to examine that thought. So one skillful thing that the Buddha might suggest to you would be to ask the question that has you worried about tomorrow. How do you know that to be true? You're functioning as if it is. You really believe that what's going to happen tomorrow is going to end your life as you know it, ruin your life as you know it, destroy your dreams, and so forth. So instead of going with that, we stop and we ask the question, how do I know that to be true? And we don't move from that question until we are clear, and my experience has been when you ask that question about much of the worryment, we we carry around with us as if it is a fact of life is not true. Things will change. That doesn't mean your life is over. Things will be different, but it doesn't mean your life is over. It doesn't mean you have to really be fearful of that. Do you know how much, and again, this is part of it, we take the time to step out of the thought that's generating the emotion of fear and you take the time to do that, one of the other realities of your life that comes up is that you've been changing since the day you were born. You certainly don't live in the same environment you did when you were an infant, when you were a child, when you were a student, you know, where everybody else paid your bills and you've ate and, and what have you. You came out into the world and you made it. You know what I'm saying? How do I know that to be true is a very powerful and skillful uh, tool in dealing with our stress and anxiety. Another question that, again, you might ask yourself in those moments is, how do my attaching to that as real, how is that benefiting me? How is it benefiting me to walk around worrying? Will worryment change anything? Will worrying about life change anything? No, it doesn't. Never does. It doesn't. So again, hopefully by then, you might be motivated to stop that. Okay? Now how do I stop that? And that is where again and again and again, like a parrot, I repeat, if you're not training your mind in meditation practice, you can't know how to do that. You can't know how to detach. So the aim and objective of this meditation training and this mindfulness training is to give you the tools which Buddhism says you already have but have forgotten. And the evidence again is we go back to our childhood. You know, why does Jesus say unless you become like a child? Why does all of Buddhism emphasize beginner's mind and what have you? You know, detachment from ego. Forget the ego. And when you forget the ego, you become you, this childlike mind surfaces. Because as children, we were able to detach. You know? I can, I can remember when I first became a parent, parenting my six-year-old daughter over the last six years. And I can remember when she was so little, and she would have these, like, you know, a, anxiety attacks, and I would like, oh my God, oh my God, what I gotta do, what I gotta do, what I gotta do? And I'm like running around the house trying to find something to help her with her pain, and I walk back in and she's smiling and laughing at a cartoon. 
on the TV. And I'm like, what the? <laughs> you know? We knew how to be present in the moment, how to detach from this and be present to what was happening. And there's a wonderful Zen story about that, that the Zen masters use as an instrument to teach. And the story has to do with a man running through the jungle being chased by three Bengal tigers who want to eat him. And he runs and runs and runs until he gets to this cliff and he slips off the cliff and he starts to fall down and reaches out and grabs a branch uh, you know, in front of him. Uh, and above him are the tigers swinging at him, you know, trying to get to him. And he looks down and there's a whole bunch of other tigers down there that if he falls are going to eat him. And while he's there dealing with all of this and obviously with the same fear you and I would have, he looks into the mountain and there's a patch of strawberries. And he reaches out and picks one and eats it. And enjoys it. You see? And all of his fear and anxiety disappears. Now the rest of the story is usually left in oblivion. Because the point of the matter is, is that even in this moment of life threatening, he was able to find joy reaching out and tasting the strawberry. So joy pervades the whole universe. Happiness pervades the whole universe. And what is often obstructing us from seeing that is our attachment to our thoughts about what's going on. Or more accurately, to the story we create about what's going on. In fact, I will suggest to you right now that all suffering is present and going on. And if you take the time, the next time you find yourself stressed out, anxious, or worrying, take the time to see what's going on in that moment, you will notice exclusively that there's a story you're running in your head. And the story that you're running in your head and the degree that you are attached to it is what is really causing the anxiety and stress. If you can detach from that story and focus on what is really so, that's the relief that comes to place. If you'd like to stand up and shake it off a little bit, go ahead and do that. Okay, any questions? Buddhism, which is the middle way, mm. to kind of 
put things in perspective so that you don't overreact one way or the other because they, they, they can be both tricky. Yeah. And as I'm getting older, I'm realizing I just don't have what it takes to go there or there. Yeah. Like I, I'm more comfortable just saying I'm willing to give up that sense of excitement or that validation of anger and just say, I'm comfortable. Yeah. I'm staying here. If I could get away with it, I would just let that go and let that be the teaching because that's the teaching. The teaching is we are always in a position for what the Buddha called a point of view. So my position is my point of view. So, you know, the people sitting in the back facing here says the world looks like that back there. And I'm saying, no, it doesn't. Okay? So my point of view, the position I am looking out at the world from, shapes and forms. So one could say, you know, the people in the back could say, well, if you want to be happy like we are, turn around. Okay? So again, we are always operating from one extreme position or the other. And so I talked about this last night before a group in Mount Laurel. I said, there's nothing wrong with positive thinking, but what we don't recognize when we're in, when we're in, you know, like entrenched in trying to think positively is that every positive thought, like everything else, has a shadow. And that shadow is the negative thought, always lurking in the background. So I can't think positively without thinking negatively. I may not be conscious of that negative, but as I think I hear you suggesting, what we often do when we're happy is we're, we're worrying subtly and in the background, when is this going to end? You see? All right? And that is a function of extreme positioning ourselves. So yes, in Buddhism, which is referred to often as the middle way, we are training to move from either one of those extremes and to be here. And what here is, you know, um, I was talking about this today with NJN uh, uh, came and filmed us, and we're going to be on TV in October. And so uh, they were filming the frog. We have a community of 30 frogs that live in that pond mm -hmm. out there. And every morning uh, when I meditate, yeah, out there, yeah. 30 frogs? 30 frogs, yeah, yeah. So in the morning when I get up and come and meditate for early dawn, uh, and it's usually before the sun comes up, and so as soon as the sun starts coming up, you can hear them. And I tell people, you hear them, they're laughing at me. Because <laughs> you can hear them out there going, and I said, you know what they're saying? What is this enlightenment you're seeking? You know? All right? So, uh, again, this detachment from and from is, you know, always remembering this will pass and so will this. Okay? And this is something that you've all heard me refer to thousands of times, and my monks very lovingly have begged me on occasion to stop saying, your reality is you're going to die. And all of this, whatever corner you're hanging out on, is going to go. 
All the happiness is going to go, you know, like they say, you can't take any of it with you. You do, really, but you can't, okay, <laughs> and so forth. So, yes, what we are actually moving towards is here. That's why this is such an integral part of our etiquette, reminding ourselves there is a middle place. And in the middle place, when I'm sad, I'm sad. And I don't try to change it. I don't try to fix it. I don't worry about it. Because what is real about it is that it will pass. It doesn't last unless I keep it around. And the way I keep it around is that I attach to it. And over here, when I'm happy, have a good time. Party. But that's not the whole thing either. Okay? So, again, remembering this too will pass. But what always follows the passing of sadness is happiness. And what always follows the passing of happiness is sadness. And what always follows the passing of sadness is happiness. That's the nature. You know, so uh, you've heard me refer to it often as Buddhism is nothing more than waiting for the next bus. You see? And if you can, like Forrest Gump, learn how to just sit and wait for the next bus, uh, it's coming. It's coming. But always remember, every one of those buses end up at the same place, the cemetery. You see? So don't get too crazy about this, and don't get too crazy about this. Um, so I wanted to ask you about, I must have in my mind that loving is difficult because I like, I only get in the mood to do it on certain days, you know, it's just, there are some days I don't really, I, I don't want to say I avoid the people I'm supposed to be loving, but I don't try to spend a whole lot of time around people that are a little bit of work for me, you know, I just say, oh, I'm, that's not me today, I'm not doing that, I'm not, so I do think it's interesting that if I think about how I want things to be and how I want the outcome to be on something, then I act in one way. But some days I don't even want to go there. I don't want to do that efforting that I know it takes to love people unconditionally. Like it just is really hard for me sometimes. So does that mean I'm not living skillfully? Is, is that because I take a lot of breaks from that. I'm spending more time alone. I don't consider it like isolating, but I think that, um, yeah, I'm not really in my relationships that I think are taking too much effort or pretty much I, I wait until I'm really feeling it to go and be in these relationships. Just like the air we breathe, it is becoming more and more polluted every day because we're not doing doing about that. I find that the world is becoming relationships, human relationships, are becoming more and more toxic every day. And you need to know that I take breaks too. Okay? I purposely do not insert myself into toxic environments. When I just, you know, I, I hear um, uh, Suzanne say, you know, as I'm getting older, yeah, me too. As I'm getting older, it's too much work. You know? I, can re I remember when one of Katagiri Roshi's, and Katagiri's been gone now for about 20 years, uh, one of his students uh, said, Roshi, have you 
Ever thought of being in love? Have you ever been in love? And he paused for a moment and looked at her and said, uh, too much work. <laughs> too much work. So yes, there are relationships that are just too much work, and I have no problem with saying, I'm just not into that today. Does it make me less loving? No. Because, again, I must love myself first, you see, because I can only give you what I have. So if I'm exposing myself to in whatever the circumstance or environment may be, knowing that I'm going to just get more, you know, that's, that's, not, that's stupid. So I'm all for that, unless you make a habit of it. So if you're balancing it with exposing yourself to those relationships that are less toxic and more empowering, that's, that's how you balance That's happening. That's happening. Yeah. yeah. And we don't want to get to a place where it's just, oh, the world is just too toxic. Not everywhere. Like, not here. That's why the, the news interviewer asked me, do you ever leave here? And I said, yeah, but rarely. <laughs> I do. People get, can you tell me why people get excited when they hear monks go to a, I said to last night I gave a talk in Mount Lawrence, stopped at an Irish pub on the way home. She got all excited about that. That's all she wanted to talk about. <laughs> I'm a man. <laughs> you know? So I said to, I said to uh, the uh, talk I gave last night was to a community of like 80 year old women. <laughs> and uh, uh, we somehow got to that point that I was a man before I was a monk. You know, they loved it. They understood. <laughs> so, so yeah, take care of yourself. Anyone else? So, I want to read you one of my favorite stories written by Mark Nepo which uh, I think brings us all together. And you've probably heard me read it before because it's one of my favorite stories, if not my most favorite. Tenderness does not choose its own uses. It goes out to everything equally. We wandered into a corner of the Central Park Zoo, and there, despite the dozens of tourists pointing and tapping the glass, Two small monkeys were squatting on a perch of stone. To our surprise, they were both in deep sleep, their dark heads bowed to each other, their small frames limp. What was amazing was that their small, delicate hands were touching, their monkey fingers leaning into each other. It was clear that it was this small, sustained touch that allowed them to sleep. As long as they were touching, they could let go. I envied their trust and simplicity. There was none of the human pretense at independence. They clearly needed each other to experience peace. One stirred but didn't wake, and the other, in sleep, kept their fingers touching. How deeply rewarding the life of touch. Each was drifting inwardly, dreaming whatever monkeys dream. They looked like ancient travelers praying 
inside a place of rest made possible because they dared to stay connected. It was one of the most tender and humbling moments I have ever seen. Two aging monkeys weaving fingertips as if their touch alone kept them from oblivion. I pray for the courage to be as simple in asking for what I need to be. So that's my story and I'm sticking to it. So become a member of the Zen Society and stop putting it off. Get interrelated with us. Help us help you, you help us, so that we can help the rest of the world. Next Saturday is our closing one-day meditation session, and you are invited to come back, register for that online, and be with us as we bring the 30, is this our 34th or 35th? 35th uh, training period since 1975. Our 35th training period I'm sorry, since 1985, um, to a close, and we will be closed in the month of August and reopen in uh, September for our annual, or beginning with our annual weekend introduction to Zen, which you should come and do also. And if you decide to do that, I really want to encourage you to stay overnight. Uh, you have the option of leaving and coming back Sunday morning, but staying overnight really is cool because it's like a pajama party, you know, except that you don't get the party, you just get in pajamas <laughs> and what have you. And, um, and you get an opportunity to experience what it's one, the wonder of this really powerful space uh, in the dark hours of the night. So uh, come back next week and help us close uh, the part of the closing ceremonies at the end of the day is that the monks and I and those who have received the precepts renew our vows before the community. And then what follows after that is a wonderful dinner that we all share, and that's when we party. And then the monastery closes again until, I think it's September 5th? September 6th? Whatever that first Saturday is in September. And in August, I get to go to Dutch Wonderland with Katie. <laughs> you think training is tough. Was she at Campbell this summer? No, not this summer. No, we decided to, she starts first grade in September, yeah. so we decided this summer we're going to just play with her. Because yeah. you know how that goes. We'll see less and less of her as the time comes. Yeah. So, yeah. I miss her already. <laughs> My, remember my friends I was talking about earlier, my lifetime friends? Uh, uh, <coughs> I, Chrissy, the wife, Chrissy always reminds me of the day I came to her and I said to her, she's a mother of two wonderful boys that have just uh, become phenomenal scientists benefiting life. Her one son uh, just discovered uh, how to prevent disease being transmitted in, in uh, terrible situations through diarrhea. Uh, he just came up with the uh, cure for that. Uh, and her other son is, work, is a scientist also. So she raised two very beautiful boys, and I'm godfather to one of them, so I can attest to that fact. But <laughs> when I went, Chrissy off, 
often reminds me of her reaction when I said to her, I'm going to, you know, I'm thinking of having a child. And she said to me, what the hell are you thinking? <laughs> 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 what, are you crazy? <laughs> but she was uh, referring to my age at the time, and <laughs> now I understand. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, so I get to go to Dutch Wonderland in August with Katie and then come back and be with you. So, uh, Where is Dutch Wonderland? Lancaster. Oh, in the south. Yeah, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I, I offer this kid... Europe, <laughs> Canada, every year. It's the only place she wants to go. That's fine. That'll change. I'm expecting that already. <laughs> Saving for the Europe thing. <laughs> so, join us, become a member, come back next week and spend the day with us in real training, learning the skills of what we talked about tonight. Consider training with us in the 35th training period next year, beginning on September 5th. And as always, it has been sincerely a pleasure to be with you today. There are refreshments in the other room that you are welcome to partake of after we close the presentation.